we are so small and everything is so fragile and so temporary. Why would we spend any of this time doing anything other than pursuing joy and putting art in the world and making this time meaningful and memorable and like doing great things. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. Start living a better life today. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the podcast. Today is July 4th, and I just want to say God bless this country. And I just want to say how grateful, how completely grateful every cell of my being is that I was born in this country with all of its flaws and all of the things that we must continue to strive to do better. I am completely and totally aware what an absolute gift it is to live here, to be here, to be able to start this podcast, to be able to create opportunity, to be able to look around and see examples of people like Oprah and Steven Spielberg and the amount of things that we can create in this country and how this country can be for so many people around the world, what it's been. And uh, I think about my grandparents and how they came here and how they were able to reach such heights. And my husband and I always cry on July 4th. We always listen to music and watch the fireworks and just, just feel in our hearts in the deepest way, just so much gratitude for the men and women over so long who have strived to really create something beautiful and next level in this world. So happy 4th, everyone. And I also wanted to say something about freedom because July 4th is something that really brings that to mind. You know, what does it mean to be free? And I wanted to share something with you from Esther Hicks. I was taking some notes and this is what she said. The reality you think you're observing, you're creating. It's not fun to be creating your reality by default. What's fun is to hold yourself in steady vibration with what you want and then witnessing the manifesting of your creations. No one else can mess up your reality. You're making your vibrational reality around observing what you're seeing, but you're choosing where to put your attention. Vibration turns to thoughts and thoughts turn to things. Your perception in the now is your reality, not an easy concept for so many. You're the perceiver of your reality, which is why you're the creator of your reality. Your perception of your reality is uniquely your own. Two people can walk down the same street and have two different interpretations of what they see. You create your own reality and the manifestation is now. The reason what you're seeing is what you're seeing is because of your vibrational stance. Stop blaming everyone else for your reality. No one can vibrate for you. No one can focus for you. No one is responsible for what's happening to you. We mold our lives through our perceptions. You are depriving yourself of the reality you want. Be a witness of how thoughts turn to things. That's where all the fun is. Radiate a signal, broadcast it, and hold the vibration. This new reality will be formed. That's what you came for. So that was literally uh, an Abraham Hicks rant. I was taking some notes, listening to her the other day. And uh, that is so juicy, isn't it? Ooh, it's so good. I love being reminded of that. There is never a day where I don't need to be reminded of that. And boy, is it so 
thrilling to see how you can choose your vibration and how that creates your thoughts and how those thoughts do turn to things. And to be able to then understand that our most valuable tool in creating is that exact exercise of where is your vibration and how are you like a laser beam, like a 3D printer using your thoughts and your vibe to just chart the most incredible path forward. So speaking of all of this, in one month, I'll be leading a gorgeous manifestation retreat. It's all about resetting your subconscious. It's all about expansion. It's going to be happening in Malibu on a gorgeous ranch, August 1st through the 3rd. If you want to take part in this transformational experience with meditation, sound bath, breath work, complete reset to allow an abundance and raise your vibe, bring you back home to you. This is the portal to the next level. You can grab your spot at kathyheller.com slash retreat. And if you're joining over July 4th weekend, you're also going to get two months of my membership, which you'll have me then on some live calls, which are just so epic. We do a lot of coaching on those calls. And you'll also be given an abundance pack of meditations and a workshop that you can get started watching right away. So you can grab your spot at kathyheller.com slash retreat. There's already so many beautiful women in attendance and we just can't wait to be together. So really looking forward to that. All right. Well, today's episode, Will Wheaton is here. He is a writer, a New York Times bestselling author, producer, actor, narrator, blogger, and he's someone that I grew up watching on the screen. You might recognize him from numerous films and TV shows like Stand By Me, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and he also played a fictionalized version of himself in The Big Bang Theory. But these days, he's really known for his writing, which includes his uber-popular blog, willwheaton.net. On his blog, he talks about his journey with mental health, like depression and anxiety and his hobbies and what it's like being a parent and his love of board games and so many other interesting things. Will has also written best-selling books like Just a Geek, Dancing Barefoot, The Happiest Days of Our Lives, Dead Trees Give No Shelter. And he has another amazing new book out this year. It's called Still Just a Geek. It's an annotated memoir, and it's really good. In this book, he really opens up about love and trauma and tragedy and the struggle of confronting the worst parts of himself and his past. But he also celebrates all the strange, awful, beautiful adventures in between and how he's finding fulfillment in the new phases of his career. You might want to get yourself a copy or listen to the audiobook because he has said that it's a whole other experience in itself. You know, as a childhood star on the outside, it seems like this kind of person just must be living the life and you assume it's probably pretty good. But behind the scenes, he was really dealing with a lot of abuse and he was forced into things that he felt he couldn't escape. So I really want to take a second to acknowledge the amount of vulnerability that you're going to hear in this conversation because he's been through a lot and I think his words are important and I think that they might shine a light and help someone else who's in a similar situation. It was such a joy to spend time with him and I think that you're going to find that this is really, really juicy and empowering. So without further ado, please welcome Will Wheaton. You are so lovable and awesome and uh, we all got to experience it over and over and over and over again. So oh, very sweet. Thank you. yeah, no, you just are such a soul. Like yeah. the fact that you were available to um, allow us all into that, like really vulnerable part of you yeah, and uh, show up as a child and then as an adult and continuously like be full stop. So genuine and so sincere all the time in a world that's not 
is just the coolest thing in the world. So I appreciate that. Thank you. So we're so excited you're here. We're diving right in, obviously. Great. Let's go. Um, let's do it. So let's talk about where this all begins. Okay. Where we where we all get to know you, which is how old were you when all of this starts for you? So that's sort of a two-part answer. The really basic, simple answer is I was seven when my mom made me go to her commercial agent's office and tell the children's agent, I want to do what mommy does. It wasn't my idea. It was not anything that I wanted to do. I was seven. And she coached me and told me like what to do. And we practiced pretending an audition. Like she really put me through all this stuff, right? And seven. So like, I want my parents to love me and be happy and be proud of me and all that. So I went in, I did exactly as I was told and they liked me and, and started sending me on some auditions and almost immediately my whole life changed. Like I stopped going to school and going home and playing with my friends. I stopped going to school and doing my homework and watching TV. I started having a job every day and I didn't really understand what it was. I just knew that after school, all my friends got to go home and do stuff in the neighborhood, but I had to sit in the car and drive through 1970s Los Angeles smog alert traffic into Hollywood where I was around all these other kids who clearly did not want to be there. But my mom spent all this time really aggressively pointing out how all these other kids didn't want to be there, but I really did. It's like she was programming me. And I just didn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on. But sometime between being seven and eight, and my birthday's in the summer, so I don't remember if this happened in the fall or whatever, but somewhere between seven and eight, I so clearly remember saying, mom, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to be a kid. I just want to be a kid. I want to go to school. I want to play with my friends. I just want to be a kid. And my mom said, I gave up my career so you could have a career. So you made a commitment and you have to do this. So I'm like eight. Oh my God. Um, and I just kept sort of doing as I was told. I was about eight years old. I think the first time I realized that my dad didn't like me, that's a lot. So I lied to myself about it for like until I was in my 30s. <laughs> um, but I just really, really wanted to be loved and accepted at home. I wanted to make them happy and proud. And in order to accomplish that, I just had to do what I was told. So around the time I was, I was 11, I guess. I said it's a two-part thing, right? So the first part is, here's the origin story where she turns me from her son into Debbie's thing that she's going to use because she was a uh, hopeful actor. And her husband is just a narcissist bully and a racist and just an awful person. So um, I was like, I have two parents. One is less terrible than the other. I'm going to do everything I can to make that one approve of me. So when I was 11, I auditioned for Stand By Me. And then when I booked Stand By Me, everything changed. And it became this giant, huge thing that nobody really knew what to do with because I was famous. Mom had everything she wanted. I was in teen magazines. I was on the local news. I was on the dumb talk shows. I was like famous in stupid ways that absolutely don't matter at all. And I had started thinking... Maybe I'm an artist. Maybe I, maybe I want to be an artist. Maybe I want to, to do this. And that was true. But what I wanted to be was a storyteller. 
I really wanted to be a writer and I guess a, a speaker or something like, I don't know. I just wanted to tell people stories and, and like go to imaginary places and spend lots of time there. Wow. And I started thinking about that. And then I held on to that, like, I want to be an artist thing to make it okay for me to express myself as an artist being an actor all the way through my teens until I was about 18, where I was like, I don't have to do what you tell me anymore. And I don't want to do this. And I've got to go figure out what my life is about. Oh my God. It totally brings me to tears because obviously, you know, you started to speak about this over the years, but from our vantage point, watching you, nobody knows any of this. Right. right. And we, we just see this like, gorgeous, adorable, lovely, loving, endearing person having this big quote unquote win. And to think that you were in this space where you felt so trapped and so, 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 so uncomfortable. And to think that that's what was going on is so hard to even like to hold that as, as what was your experience, it's really heartbreaking. And it makes me think also, because your performance in that movie, there's two performances I've ever seen. One is you in that movie, and the other is Ben Platt in Dear Evan Hansen, mm-hmm. which I saw him perform it on Broadway. I flew to see him. Oh, wow. And he won the Tony for that, which had Stand By Me been a play, you would have won the Tony for that. Because the amount of depth and the rawness and the way in which every human being saw their own pain in you, how you were able, it like, to think that that was because on some very big level, you were actually in that kind of pain. I didn't even know that until, I don't know, five years ago six, seven years ago. What I will say is I was 100% turned into a thing by my mom. I was a thing. I, I stopped getting unconditional love. I stopped getting unconditional support. I was a tool for her. She is an unbelievably manipulative person, extremely emotionally immature. And I've said like, loved me the way like a nine-year-old loves her dolls. Right. Like the love is so genuine and so intense. Right. But like, it's a toy. It's a thing that 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 the, that the child uses to feel better or feel distracted or whatever. And that's what I became. That's the first thing. The second thing is when we were doing Stand By Me, I really liked it. I really enjoyed being on the set. I loved Rob Reiner. I loved River Phoenix. I loved not having to be around my dad for three months. I loved going to like play pretend during the day and then in the evenings, I got to go be a kid, right? The other kids and I, we would go to like the water park or the arcade or the mall. Like we all went and saw Back to the Future together because it came out that summer. We saw Goonies together. We saw Explorers together. It was awesome. I loved it. I knew what it was like to be a child with friends who like went on field trips and stuff. And I had never experienced that in my life. During production, Corey Feldman was a gigantic pain in the ass. He was... Just, he was a bully to me. Uh, he was a diva. And it was really just unpleasant. I, parenthetically, I have so much love for him and compassion and empathy for him. When I was 13 and he was 15, it sucked. 
Now that we are adults, I 100% understand that child who was in so much pain and who was so filled with rage because as bad as my parents were as negligent and horrible as they were, they do not even begin to enter the same universe of awfulness of his parents. Oh my God. So I said to Rob, there's like a million actors in the world. Why'd you hire this guy? He's like such a dick. And Rob said he was the only actor I, I auditioned who had the rage and fury and anger inside of him that Teddy has. Now, I was like 12 or 13. I turned 13 during production. So like, you know, I'm still a barely formed human being. That really, really landed on me. And I thought, oh, this totally makes sense because River seems haunted. River seems like he knows too much. River seems like he's too old. He's older than he should be. And there's a wisdom, but a sadness and a pain in him that like, I want to soothe and like, I just want to be close to Jerry always makes us laugh. Like no matter what, he's so easygoing. He's so enthusiastic. He's optimistic. He's, he's, he's hilarious. Like he just kind of rolls with it. Of course that's Fern. Where do I fit in? I'm a writer, I guess. That's what I want. No, Will, that's not at all why you fit in. You fit in because just like Gordy, your dad hates you. Just like Gordy, you're an invisible boy in your home. Just like Gordy, you are not loved unconditionally. And just like Gordy, if your dad had to pick you or one of your siblings to die, it would be you. It wouldn't even be a choice. He would just, he would throw you away if he could. When I realized all of that, I then realized that every role I ever played in my entire acting career was a character who in one way or another did not have a dad. Wesley didn't have a dad. His dad was killed when he was a baby. Even in Toy Soldiers, which is like this silly, like kind of like disposable teenage action movie, the character I play hates his dad because <laughs> he doesn't want to have anything to do with him. The Will Wheaton that I played on The Big Bang Theory is basically a version of me. So like that comes with me everywhere I go. I didn't put it all together, but every character I ever played where people were like, you're such a good actor. Well, I mean, thank you. But I think also maybe I was just really good at allowing that to show. I had to put it somewhere. It had to go someplace. And like, I'm grateful that I had those, those outlets that I did to bring those performances to life. This is the point in my story where people listening to it begin to feel like, oh my God, I'm a monster. I loved those movies. I loved that TV show, whatever. And this is where I say, it's super okay. I'm glad you liked them. I'm thrilled that you liked them. It's very good work. They're wonderful works of art that so many people worked on and it's really okay. And, you know, spare a thought for that little boy who's sad and scared and then just, just know he turns it to me. He ends up having a really, really great life. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and it's all, you know, like in the TNG episode tapestry, it's all part of it, you know, like all the threads have to weave together, even the really painful, terrible ones. Yeah. And it's interesting that I made that parallel between that performance and Dear Evan Hansen, because that's a play that turned into a movie about a kid whose dad left and yeah. has a new life and he doesn't feel seen. And what's so fascinating is that we don't talk enough about this, I don't think, in our culture about dads. I really don't. I really don't think we talk a lot about the imprint it makes 
And my dad left and I didn't hear from him or know from him for a long time when he, my parents divorced and he actually got married and my sister and I didn't even know and he had a new family. I, at the time, didn't realize how much that was affecting me, even though I was very, very sad. It was, it was only later on that I realized, wow, I've been like really tough. Like, it's all good. It's fine. But it's really not fine. And I think there's a lot of people who can identify with whether it's a father or a mother, just feeling this thing with you through your life. And how did you since then, right? Because you have such an ability to now really discuss this in depth. How have you made sense of it to a point where you could have this beautiful life now for yourself? How have you healed that to whatever extent you could? David Foster Wallace gave an amazing graduation speech once that was turned into a little book called This is Water. It starts out with two fish coming up to each other. And one fish says, hey, how's the water? And the other fish goes, what's water? The water in my life was that everyone's life is like this. You have to earn being loved. You have to work hard and achieve, tick a certain number of boxes to be worthy of your parents being proud of you. If you don't do these things, you've brought shame to your family. My mother's favorite and most effective manipulation tool whenever I stepped out of line to like step up for myself was there's nothing more important than family. You're betraying the family. You're turning your back on the family. You're embarrassing the family. You're not taking care of the family. I had been financially taking care of the family from the time I was about nine, like well until I took all of my finances back from them. This is a totally separate thing. I trusted them to take care of my money. They stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from me. They forced my wife and me to like live paycheck to paycheck when we absolutely didn't need to because I just trusted them. I don't even know what the word is. Like this is abuse. Like this is not. It's, it's it's, it is. Yeah, it's absolutely abuse. And and um, I think that, well, I know that both my folks would absolutely say that it's not because my dad only choked me a couple of times. And, you know, my dad only picked me up by my neck and shook me in front of my friends like a few times. He only came and screamed in my face that I was a dumb little fuck when I was sitting with like six of my friends. Only did that like five or six times. Like somehow, you know, it's all okay. Or it was my fault for making him mad. It was like all of that. It's all the things that people who are targeted and who are abused hear all of the time. So- so to get back to your initial question is, is this, like, I had to learn that none of this is okay. Yeah. I had to learn in order to be the dad my kids deserve, in order to be the husband my wife deserves, and in order to be the person I deserve, I had to figure out that none of this stuff is okay and it's absolutely not normal. And that was real hard because my dad never cared about me. And like the continuum of emotions from my dad was either on a good day, completely disinterested in me and on a bad day, just relentlessly picking at me and just like attacking me. And it was one of those two things. There was no in between at all. And I figured that was just how it was, you know? When I learned that that wasn't normal, when I learned that that was not okay, I started reading books about emotionally immature parents and being raised by narcissists. And I saw my parents and my family dynamic reflected in like the most basic 
simple first day psychology students would go, oh, that family's fucked up. Like, I mean, it's like it's like that. Right. But then massively gaslighted about it. Just so gaslighted about it. My sister and I still talk about how our mom just invents a world that absolutely doesn't exist and then acts as if we live in it. Like that never happened. What, what are you talking about? I just literally just happened. Right. And that stuff made me feel crazy. To avoid the pain of it, I was a very functioning alcoholic for about 10 years. I really let my kids down a couple of times without realizing it. I suffered and struggled like crazy. When I understood what was going on, when I had gotten sober, when I had gotten therapy, when I had done lots of homework to understand that this is not okay, I felt like, all right, I need to be the person I need in the world. I needed somebody my whole life. I always needed someone to say, Hey, man, you know, like, I don't know if any of you are experiencing these things, but like, you know, you don't have to. Like, this is not right. This is not normal. And I realized that, like, I watched my dad and mom give all kinds of love to my brother, the golden child. I've watched them give unconditional love to my sister, who's their only girl, and just withhold it from me. It was just a choice. It was like an absolute choice. And when I realized that, I realized this is not about me. I'm just unlucky. I'm really unlucky that these two selfish, emotionally immature people just that I got stuck here. You know, it's a bummer. And when I realized that it wasn't about me, and this is a huge thing that I think has been really helpful to me in my entire adult life. I don't know if I could have embraced this when I was younger. I don't know if I had lived enough to fully understand it. But I have concluded that when somebody's horrible, it is never about you, ever. It doesn't matter what it is. If you screw up and somebody's reaction to that is massively out of proportion to the degree of screw up and you've been like, oh man, I I screwed up and like, let me make it okay. And they will not. That's not about you and your screw up. That's about them. So part of this thing that shifted in me years ago, what happened was I, I quit drinking. I started antidepressants. I started regular therapy and I started to get better. And I just thought, I need to talk about this. Yeah. I have lived my mother's lie. And when I was not successful the way they wanted me to be, I made myself as small as possible Mm -hmm. because I just felt so bad about myself. Getting away from them was one of the best things I ever did. It still sucks. Like not having parents is awful. It's the worst thing. And occasionally when I'm out having a great day, I'll remember something they did and just be like, oh, why did you have to dump that on me, brain? Like, I didn't need to remember that right now. But I thought that I just need to talk about this because if someone with my unbelievably charmed life and my unbelievable amount of privilege and like I live life on the lowest difficulty setting, I'm a cisgendered, heterosexual, middle-class, wealthy white man in America, like but I can still be unbelievably sad and depressed and afraid and struggling. Um, And I can, and and if all of that can happen to me, that can absolutely happen to somebody who doesn't have all the privilege and comfort I have. Yeah. And maybe I have an opportunity to share some of the things that have worked for me that would have been helpful for me to hear. Maybe I can say the things that like Jenny Lawson said for me, a long time ago, or the guys from Penny Arcade said a long time ago, like those sorts of things 
I started talking about just having depression and anxiety and, and yeah. all of that when I still had contact with my parents and they were, my dad didn't care, but my mother was mortified. It was so embarrassing and shameful. And I was like, that's why I'm talking about it because yeah. your shame and embarrassment made me suffer with untreated, undiagnosed mental illness for literally my entire life. And like, you know, there's a real fine line between blaming and holding accountable. But like when you force your seven-year-old to go to work and then don't listen to them, when your seven-year-old is clearly being bullied by your husband and you never stand up, when your 13-year-old is being bullied by your husband and you make your 13-year-old apologize to the bully, your 13-year-old's brain starts to change. Yeah. We, just can't, we just can't help it. And all this stuff kind of like happened to me. And I tried for years. I was like, listen, we're all older now. We're all adults. Can we please talk about this? It was not going to happen. Oh my gosh. I was just watching this weekend, you know, Ram Dass. There's like a couple documentaries of Ram mm -hmm. Dass that you can find on Amazon Prime. And there's one that's called Becoming Nobody. And yeah. it's about the beginning of it. He talks about somebody training, how his like parents yeah. wanted him to be somebody, the somebody that they wanted. And they put him in the somebody suit and kept praising him for being the somebody they wanted. Oh, and yeah. he came to this place of like, but I'm so miserable getting praised to be the somebody. I'd rather be who I really am, which is my soul, my consciousness, this awareness, this whatever I oh. find when I meditate, when I do LSD, when I do psilocybin, this mm. part of me that's actually bigger than somebody that you want me to be. And you would probably love it if you haven't like seen it because he's- I haven't. He also, Ram Dass, he just beams light. You know, he's just such an enlightened person. But it is so important that we talk about this. You know, one of your friends, Lash co-stars Maya Bialik, her recent movie, I mean, it's about her upbringing and just the stuff that was going on in the mental illness and her family. And I cried from the moment it started till the end because the slice of life, true- depictions of what somebody is and has been dealing with. There's a woman, Emily Espahani Smith, who did a TED talk called Happiness is Overrated. And in her research at Harvard, she found that what people want more than happiness is belonging. Mm -hmm. And so when you name this, people feel less alone. There's this idea in folklore and mythology that if you know a demon's name, it can't hurt you right? Like you dispel it. Like the demon does everything it can to keep its name secret. Even the demons, especially the demons you summon to protect you, right? And then long after they have stopped protecting you, they hang around and now they extract their price. And to dispel that demon and send it back, you have to know what its name is. And in like mythology, it's some cool Germanic, you know, Aramaic demon name. But in my real life, it was child abuse and it was PTSD and it was being gaslit all the time and decoupling and rejecting the concept of weakness as related to mental illness was extremely important to me. Yeah. And if nothing else, what I hope I leave behind in this world is something that pushed us away from being shamed and embarrassed and feeling weak and helpless when we have mental illness um, and moving us toward normalizing mental health treatment and mental health care. And hopefully at some point, like, you know, I don't go on podcasts to talk about the time I wore a cast on my, on my wrist. You know, I don't go on podcasts to talk about that time I had a high ankle sprain and walked with a cane for three months, but I still go on podcasts to talk about mental health. Yeah. Well, I would love it 
for there to be a future where we just don't talk about it because we always talk about it. It's not remarkable to talk about it. And the only way we're ever going to get there is if more people, and especially people who like in the eyes of the mass public have like something to lose. Yes. They are the people who we really, really, really need to speak out. Yeah. Well, that's why, I mean, I know that for you, this has become just really part of what you've been doing, but I do think it's extremely courageous. You know, Justin Baldoni talks a lot about, you know, men allowing room for all these kinds of conversations, but it's, it's not happening all the time everywhere. And to be someone who everybody has a certain perception of and Mm -hmm. to, share this is extremely courageous and brave. And you use the word shame before. And in my journey with meditation and therapy and all the rest, I found something really powerful, which was a teaching around shame, which is that there is room for all kinds of emotions, right? There's, there's room for all kinds of experiences. There's room for grief. There's room for pain. The reason that shame is so toxic is because there's really no way to hold shame. Like, It's, it's from the outside in, it's not coming from within us. And so if we can just make space for all the parts of us, the parts of us that self-sabotage, the parts of us that are broken, the parts of us that are brave, the parts of us that are brilliant, we can let go of shame, which is the biggest obstacle, right? Because then it's just everyone on my block is struggling with something. So to, to have the shame to then try to act as though we have to hide this that's the toxic part. That's what's making everyone sick. So thank you so much. And let's talk about your blog because okay. you grew this thing. I mean, it just exploded. And was that a surprise for you? Were you expecting to have millions of people just rally around and want to read all of your thoughts? No, I didn't at all. Um, I was wholly unprepared for all of that. <laughs> back up a little bit and go back to the year. Let's go back to 2000. In, in 2000, the internet was really making its way into homes all over the world, but particularly we'll just stay with America. So it's like getting around everywhere. I had already been online for a really long time, uh, but it was just all text. There was no graphics at all. There was no social media. YouTube was still four years away. And when I was like figuring out how I was going to, like, what was I going to do with this? Was I going to be part of this online? I just ran into a couple of dudes and they were like, you know, we could help you put up just a website for yourself. Not a lot of people had websites in 2000, like certainly not personal websites. So I taught myself how to make a website. I taught myself HTML. I taught myself as much PHP as I needed to understand how to do it. I found some blogging software called Gray Matter that let me do all of it. And I just started writing every day. And it was like, I felt like I was a greyhound who had been living inside an apartment my entire life. As soon as I could write, as soon as I could just say stuff, right? I just felt like, wow, I'm really spreading my wings and I'm really like getting going and I'm really enjoying this. And I don't have to participate in being silent about things and I don't have to be small and maybe it doesn't matter if I'm getting approval from my family because like there's other people in this world who also matter. And, you know, there's Hank and John Green are are amazing, brilliant, wonderful human beings. And they are like first generation OG YouTubers, right? Along with like Megan Camarena and Lena Morris, Grace Helbig, Hannah Hart, that group of people, right? And Felicia Day and I kind of, rode in with that little wave too, with the guild and then with tabletop. 
Hank and John have said, like back in those days, it was very easy to start a YouTube channel. And if your content was interesting, like you build an audience immediately. Nowadays, it's so hard to stand out. It is so hard to get noticed that it kind of doesn't matter how good you are. You could be making the most amazing thing in the world and nobody will ever just accidentally find it. So in 2000, it was novel that this adult who used to be a kid actor was writing a blog and talking about, I worked on Star Trek and talking about, I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm not 14, I'm 27. (laughs) all of those things. And that the novel nature of that, I think, gave me an opportunity to just be seen and heard. And I thought I had more to say then than I actually did, which is, I think, part of the beautiful arrogance of youth. I wish I had been a bit more responsible and reflective and all that. Again, the arrogance of youth. Someone who reviewed Still Just a Geek said beautifully, and I'm so glad that she said this. Of course, it came from a woman. I just have always felt that like men in their 20s shouldn't write memoirs because they haven't lived long enough to do it. And I was like, yeah, I felt that way when I was pushed into writing Just a Geek. And I was like, I don't want to do this. I don't have a story to tell. I don't, but everyone's like, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. Like, if you don't write a book, you're not a real writer. And I was so, so I was like, fine, I'm going to do that. I'm glad that I did it because 20 something years, 18 years later, 18, almost 20 years later, I came across what was like basically an unfinished draft and looked at it and went, oh, I know how to turn this into a full I know how to do this. There's all this stuff that's missing. There's all that stuff I wasn't being honest with myself about. There's all that stuff that I was I was like wishing really hard would be true. And there are these things in, in Just a Geek that were the most consequential things in my life. These were things that I would never recover from or things would never be bigger than this. And until I sat down with them to do Still Just a Geek, I'd completely forgotten about them. And there's a really important lesson there, a really, really, really important lesson and hope Hopefully something that's really reassuring, especially to younger people. There are moments in our lives that feel like this is it. This is the single most consequential thing in my life. And more often than not, we're wrong about that. It's very consequential at the time, but everything is impermanent. And if we know kind of like what we're going for, or we have an idea of where we want to go when these things happen that are great, we enjoy them, we live through them, and we keep on moving because we're going toward whatever, you know, the ultimate goal is. And that is such a huge lesson. It really is. This conversation has been so good, but now just a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. In the past few years, I've gotten really intentional about meditating every day to take care of my mind and energy because how we care for our minds affects how we experience our life. So it's so important to invest time and care into keeping all of that healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a new healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, and there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. I started to go to therapy when I was 15, and throughout my life, it's really been helpful, especially in times where I'm really feeling stuck in an old pattern. And sometimes just talking things out with a person, they can just help you see from a more objective, a clearer vantage point. And nowadays, there's so much going on in the world, and we're all trying our best to process all of that noise on top of what's happening in our day-to-day. So I think therapy sometimes is just a great resource, and BetterHelp Online Therapy 
offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions so that you don't have to really see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. That's betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. In writing Still Just a Geek, which came out not that long ago, if there was one way to sort of boil down what you wanted people to walk away with, like what are you hoping when someone finishes that last page and puts it down on their nightstand, like that they, that they keep with them? I have not yet been able to find an answer that I feel really good and really confident that I can absolutely stand behind. I will tell you the closest I've come. <laughs> no one thing in any of our lives absolutely defines us. Every single one of us has the absolute fundamental right as a human being in this world to make mistakes, to learn from them and grow from the lesson and have the opportunity to find and realize our individual dreams. Hmm. So beautiful. That was almost entirely taken away from me. And what sucks is that it was entirely taken away from me by the two people who should have been there loving me and holding me up yeah. and supporting me to find what I wanted to do with my life. I have two sons, one son, just hasn't quite figured out what he wants to do yet. He's trying a lot of different things. He's done a bunch of different trade schools. He's done a little bit of university. He just hasn't really found that thing just yet. And like, yeah, I wish he had a career now just because he'd be like, you know, building toward a retirement, but he doesn't have a family. He doesn't have any big responsibilities. And he's a good, loving, wonderful person. Mm -hmm. And like, I can't point to him and be like, that's my kid, Kieran, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I don't care. <laughs> You know, well, it's like, that's my kid. He's super famous. Like, I don't care. Neither one of my parents could say that at all. And that was a terrible burden for me to carry. Yeah, it was really, really unfair and unreasonable and deeply selfish to put that onto a child. So because so much of that was almost just all yanked away from me, it's really important to me that I'm just reminding people all the time of those things that I said. You are not defined by a single thing. You're allowed to change your mind. Your dream when you're 15 may not be the same as your dream when you're 20, which will definitely not be the same as your dream when you're 25, which is not gonna be the same as your dream when you're 40. Like just you change as you move through life and that's okay. It's cool, it's a feature, it's not a bug. And be gentle with yourself. The world's gonna beat up on you a lot. Like. Mm -hmm. The voice that you use inside your head as you go through all of these things, as you work toward realizing the best version of you that you can possibly be, which is, if you're doing it right, is a constant work in progress, right? As you're like going through the world and you are like trying to do that, use the voice with yourself that you use out loud with the person that you cherish and adore and love in the world you absolutely should talk to yourself the exact same way. I would never talk to my wife the way I used to talk to myself. I would never talk to my sons the way that I would talk to myself. And then unsurprisingly, I realized that that was my dad's voice. It, that was in my head forever and ever and ever. And then I was finally, one night I was like, you don't get to talk to me anymore. Right. I mean, I've done all this work now to, and this is all stuff that everybody at this point knows, which is cool. We've learned so much about 
the brain and our consciousness. And like, we're literally being programmed from zero to 12, like your mind, somebody is writing the code. And so, you know, I heard Tom Petty say once that after he would do a concert, he would have to pace in his hotel room for like an hour to come down from that experience. And I've always thought, you know, for, for kids who have so much fame, like thrust upon them at such a young age, right. And everyone's screaming your name when you walk out of a car, Oh my God. And you're on the cover of teen beat and big bop or whatever it is. And it's just like, it's so intense then to wake up 18 months later when a little bit of that dies down and it just feels this feeling of like what you were describing. Okay. What, what do I do now? Right. Like, and so now how do you find fulfillment on a regular Tuesday when you're not going to be on center stage at Madison square garden, when, when you're not going to be having that moment of a premiere every day, like how do you learn to find just yourself and some beautiful levels of like meaning and satisfaction when, when it's never going to have that high sustained. It's challenging. Yeah. Ann and I went to a concert a couple of weeks ago. Our friend took us and he's fancy. So we got fancy treatment <laughs> Good. We were like six rows back from the stage or whatever. And I turned around and looked at the theater and I have played theaters this size. Yeah. I've stood on stage in a sold out house of 8,000 people. Like I've done that. And I looked around at all these people and it was like, none of these people care that I'm here. That's not true. They just don't know. No, nobody cares. They're not there for me. They're there for somebody else. It's great. It's amazing. No, yeah. But believe me, they care. No, they they don't. It's cool. It absolutely doesn't matter. It's incredible. I loved it. To get to do that. It's a privilege and it's a burden. Yeah especially for a young person who doesn't have perspective. Right. The trick is to understand that like, it's not about how many houses you sell out. It's not about how many records or books you or tickets you sell. It's not about that. It's about the process of making the work. Yeah. I have friends who are in bands and every single one of them has said when they finish recording the album and then they tour it they want to re-record the album after they tour because now they understand it Mm. and because they've lived with it for a while and i absolutely get that the joy comes from making the thing the joy is doing the work when when i finished still just a geek part of me was like immediately began to freak out about what was going to happen and i was like you stop sit down and listen to me Everything that we can possibly do is done. Mm -hmm. It's all in this file that we are about to mail, right? (laughs) It's over. Whatever is going to happen with this book has already happened. You just have not yet observed the results. So what are you going to do? Wait and allow other people to define for you what is success? Are you going to let other people define for you whether this was a good use of your time or not like it has to be about that process and that and it's just taking my validation and my happiness and my sense of self-worth away from other people and 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 being responsible for it myself it's really cool and wonderful (laughs) and 
I'm so grateful that this book is landing on people the way that like I hoped it would. I am hearing from people, I'm hearing from fellow survivors, I am hearing from fellow parents, I am hearing from, from people who have really nothing in common with me, how much they enjoyed the story and how much it was inspiring and that they were really glad that they spent the time with it. A big part of this story is, is about this almost 50-year-old man talking about what it was like to be an abused child who lived in the public spotlight where all of that was secret and hidden. But there's a lot of it also that's just like, believe it or not, I do have a very wry sense of humor. And when I'm in that space, when I'm in that comedy space, I write a good joke every now and then. Yeah. So there's that in it too. And there are stories about how much I love being a dad. And there's a story in there about being absolutely terrified that my wife was gonna die. And like what it means to go through that. And people told me like that, really resonated with me because I experienced that with a partner as well. I just did a bunch of travel for the, the second time in about five weeks. The first time I went to the airport and oh my God, there was my book in the bookstore at the airport. Yes. It's really cool. And I was like, <laughs> ah, that was great. Okay. So I took a picture and I was like, this is cool. I want to remember it. And I said at the time, you're never going to see this again. Just love this, love this moment. You know, when you are in an airport again, and you go to the bookstore and you do not see your book there. That part of your brain that was programmed by dad is going to tell you you're a loser because it's not there anymore. Don't listen to that part of your brain. This is awesome. You did this and enjoy this. And then like, don't make it important if it happens again or not. You know, like whether this happens again or not, this moment is valid and meaningful. I don't know if that is just a, a thing that comes naturally to people. I don't know if... It is my weird, broken, abusively programmed brain, like having to be reminded of those things. Yeah. I hope for other people that they don't have to be reminded of those things. You know, it's just like, yeah. hey, man, I did a great performance and the house was sold out. That's amazing. Cool. Well, four nights from now, I did a great performance and the house was half full. Two great performances. And I love them. And that's what it really has to be. That's where I have to put my focus. It's so, so healing and it brought tears to my eyes when you just shared that. And, you know, when you first came on and we started recording, the very first word I used to describe you was lovable. And I said that because that's how I feel. And I really, I would be as bold to say that I think that other people feel that exact way. It's like this kid that we've all grown up with. I mean, I'm 43, so you were right there when I, when I started watching anything. It was like this pure kindness, the sincere, this beautiful kid who then had so much love. And you're even now in this interview, you've done zillions and you're so generous. Like you're just so passionate. Every response, you're like, let me think about that. Like everything you didn't get, you give that constantly. I hope that you, at least in this moment, just like you did in the airport, I hope you really let that in because I'm not saying that for any other reason other than that's just how everyone feels. And I get to be one person who's an ambassador of that in this moment. And I'm sure you hear that all the time. You have to hear it all the time because it's the truth. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I spent a lot of my life feeling unseen. I spent too much of my life feeling unseen. All of my childhood, all of my teens, I was famous and felt invisible. Yeah. I felt like nobody knew me. 
they knew the famous kid. They knew Debbie's thing. Mm. That was how I was presented whenever anything happened, whenever anything went anywhere. Family gatherings, you know? I showed up as a novelty. Mm. And I never felt seen. I am happiest in my life when I am in this place of kindness and gratitude and gentle support, which is lovable with more steps. <laughs> and and yeah. that's really where I'm doing my best to be. And like, and it's hard, you know, it's, it is a challenge for a lot of survivors of abuse and, as, and for a lot of us who are trauma survivors, we just have really overly attuned fight or flight reflexes. Our freeze and fawn responses are really strong. We're hypervigilant and it can make me feel like the dog in the car who can't just lay down, you know? It's exhausting. And I actually totally relate to it because I had so much of, you know, my own trauma in my childhood. And I went to a week long psychodrama week of therapy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of podcaster friends of mine were like, no, no, you need to go. It's amazing. And so I went for six days and you give away your phone and you basically are in these small pods where somebody plays you as a kid and somebody plays your parents and there's a therapist there. And, and on the last day, it was my turn. And the therapist told me to have someone play me as a child. And both my parents were, you know, there's just a lot of stuff in my childhood. So she said, everything your parents gave you to hold, take one of these big blocks, there's these huge phone blocks and hand it to this kid who's playing you. Mm -hmm. And then whisper in her ear what they're handing you. So it's like, you know, here's my dad telling me about his affairs and telling me to keep them a secret from my mom. Here, hold this. You know, here's my mom trying to commit suicide twice. Here, hold this. Like just on and on until this girl playing me, you couldn't see her. She was holding this huge stack of these styrofoam blocks so the therapist says to me go over to her now and help her put them down and I said okay she goes now whisper in her ear and say you don't have to live here anymore I tell her I start to cry she starts to cry and then she says now tell her I'm coming to get you I'm here I'm coming to get you and I cried on a level that I didn't know was possible. And it was so helpful to me to realize that this little girl inside of me who had to handle and hold way too much way too early on, she's looking to me now as yeah. like my adult self. And she's like, yes. don't throw me to the wolves anymore. Like, come and get me. And I now can see, even though it's really hard and I still have all of that stuff, like you said, like that fight or flight response goes on really fast. I can see now that little kid and she's so good and she's too good, right? And I'm wondering like when you look back now, cause you've shared so much of what you were experiencing, but now when you look at that seven, eight, nine, 10, 12 year old kid, can you see what we see? Like, do you see now like how easy it is to love him? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There are times, so, Parenthetically, I guess, I do not believe in a single supernatural thing in this world. And that said, I have had these moments where I feel like young me is like crying out to just be acknowledged and recognized. Like young me needs something. 
and it will be sparked by like my Tron machine is behind me. I'm like playing a video game, you know, mm. and I'll get some weird memory of being 11 years old. And I will have to kind of like stop what I'm doing. And as an adult, as a dad, as a godfather, as an uncle, as who I am now, I am there for that little boy. And I tell him, you're super safe now, buddy. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, that memory is, is experiencing something firsthand in like, we'll say 1987 or whatever. And I have to, I like do this thing where I kind of like cognitively stand up for me the way I couldn't stand up for me then. And in the process of doing that, things that keep coming back, moments where I'm just like, how could they do that? Like they lose a lot of their sting they lose their immediacy and ultimately they lose their power and they just kind of end up put away in a library somewhere, you know, of like things to not do. And both of my parents really mocked and belittled the idea of the inner child. As I get older and I see therapists talk about things that are really natural and really helpful and really, <laughs> yeah. and really like positive and loving and nurturing, they're all things that both of my parents were like very disdainful toward um, and openly contemptuous of. And it's real interesting to me. We've had conversations with my friends and, and other people who, who I love about how when someone doesn't want you to be able to have boundaries for yourself, when someone is not telling you and teach, especially a parent, when they're not teaching you how to like stand up for yourself and set your boundaries, which are so important for like healthy interpersonal relationships, right? People who respect your boundaries aren't going to have a problem with you having boundaries. They are the fundamental, they are the keystone of long-term relationships. Well, when parents are all about blowing your boundaries down, it's because they are benefiting by ruining your boundaries. Yeah. They are... It gives them a control over you that they otherwise would not have. I didn't even realize that until I was like in my 40s. Same. <laughs> I've, I've spent an enormous amount of time the last few years really remembering and just kind of like almost like free writing, just writing down and letting the kid talk and, and just write down whatever he is saying, whatever he is feeling. Because my whole life, I wasn't allowed to. I couldn't say these things out loud. I tried. I tried a few times, but I just wasn't really heard, you know? Yeah. And I didn't really know how to express the severity of what I was experiencing. And to everybody on the outside, it looked great. You know, we who are trauma survivors are extraordinarily skilled at keeping our trauma hidden. We who are abuse survivors are magnificent at protecting our abusers. It's a astonishing how good we are at it. Yeah. And there are people who, my entire Star Trek family, when I ended having contact with my parents um, over the next few months, whenever I saw someone from the cast of Next Generation, I needed to tell them personally and privately, like, listen, this here's a five minute encapsulation yeah. of the truth of my life. And the reason I'm telling you all of this is that when I, I was a kid and we were on Next Generation, you were a parent figure to me. Every member of our cast was a parent figure to me in different ways. They all showed up for me all the time. My parents never showed up for me. And 
my Star Trek family showed up for me. My studio teacher showed up for me. There were a couple of directors who showed up for me. My costumer showed up for me. You know, those were people who loved me and cared for me and contributed to like saving my life, you know? And every one of them, every member of my cast, including Frakes and Gates, who I am closest to, didn't know because I hit it so well. Hmm. And then they were like super sad and like, oh, I'm so, I wish we had known. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think I knew. Yeah. I don't think I fully knew. All I knew was whenever this guy is horrible to me and I try to say or do anything about it, I get in trouble. Yeah. I wrote recently that when every room you walk into is full of people who have already made up their mind about you. Oh my God. You just stop walking into rooms. Yeah. What's the point? Yeah. And I had this thing where like toxic fandom when I was on Star Trek was really cruel to me and reaffirmed all the terrible things my dad said about me. And then at at the same time, that was the place I could go to escape the reality of my awful home life. So I was like, I got to have a safe place, man. And that safe place ended up being tabletop games, um, painting Warhammer figures in my dressing room, um, <laughs> like that. And, and like, you know, that was really where I put a lot of my time and energy. I'm really lucky. You know, a lot of my peers, some of my peers did not survive. Yeah. Some of them took their own lives. Some of them accidentally overdosed. All of them were in some kind of pain that they didn't know what to do with. I was right there. You know, I've, I've talked about it a little bit. I contemplated suicide numerous times when I was a teenager because I was so sad and so scared and hurting so much. And I'm really, really grateful that I didn't. Like, talk about a thing that you can't undo. But like, nobody should feel that way. Nobody should feel like they're just out of options. And you especially shouldn't feel like you're out of options because of the way your parents treat you. Yeah. You know, that's when you choose to bring kids into this world, like you make an implied promise. Yeah. And if you cannot uphold your end of that promise, either through doing the work after you've realized I'm not equipped to do this, yeah, or you just absolutely choose not to do it at all, you really, you don't deserve to be a parent. Yeah. I had a friend who recently was called by a family whose son was suicidal and was in a place trying to get him help. And it wasn't working. And finally, the place said, we're just going to send him back because there really is not anything left for us to do. Mm-hmm. And they did every possible thing. So then they call this friend of mine who, for whatever reason, was a very close family friend. He was a teacher, a very loving person. I was like, can you go talk to him? They're going to send him home tomorrow. And then we have nothing. So he walks in the room and the kid says to him, if you came here to tell me what anyone's already told me, there's no point. It doesn't work. You don't have to tell me anything. A priest came yesterday. Don't tell me what he told me. And he says, what did he tell you? He goes, he told me God loves me. So my friend says, he didn't know what he was going to say. And then he said, well, I wasn't here to tell you that. So he goes, okay, well, what do you want to tell me? And he says, I was going to tell you that the world needs you. And he said that the kid just said, well, no one's told me that. And he got better. And I want you to know, which you already know, and we've talked about it a few times. This is so important. And the world really, really, really needs you. And they really need you to tell this story and to show up this way. 
thanks. I'm doing my best to be the person I need in the world. Yeah. And when I'm actively doing my best to be the person I need, I am more often than not, and this is amazing, I'm passively the person someone else needs. Right. And that's a gift and yes. it's a privilege. To finish my thought from earlier, when a lot of my friends were engaging in very risky, dangerous behavior, when they were in environments where there were predators, where there was just opportunity after opportunity for self-destructive behavior, mm. I was playing tabletop board games with my nerd friends. <laughs> I was watching the original Star Trek on VHS. I was watching the original Battlestar Galactica on VHS. Like that's the person I was, right? The giant nerd you've been seeing since I guess we started tabletop 11 years ago. <laughs> that's who I've always been, you know? Like that's, that is just who I am. I'm not cool. I don't go to clubs. I don't go <laughs> hang out with beautiful people. Like I go to punk shows that are like, in basements like that's where i'm at home you know like i don't like fancy places it's just not at all where i want to be i want to be with my fellow nerds i want to be with my fellow music nerds and game yeah. nerds and, you yeah. know like there is just something to be said you know i kind of famously said that being a nerd is not about the thing you love it's about the way you love that thing yes it's so good right? like a person who absolutely loves, like, I don't know, a football team, let's say the Cincinnati Bengals, and they go to the football game in like a tiger costume with a helmet and, you know, and all that stuff. Guess what? That's called cosplay. <laughs> that is, you're cosplaying, friend, and you're having a great time, right? It's amazing, isn't it? Hey, you know all y'all who play fantasy sports? Well, oh, you're yeah. not playing D&D for jocks. It is exactly <laughs> the same thing. You're using your imagination to pretend that you're a, that you're a GM and then you're using the random number generator of the actual game to determine what happens. Okay, so that's great, right? We're not that different. No. When we fundamentally get down to it, we are not different. We all make different choices. And the, the tolerance paradox says that we all get to choose who is worthy of proximity to our lives and all of that. Right. And, and the choices people make, I think, give us the information we need to make informed decisions. But if we take away the artificial ideas that separate us, we are all the same. It's so true. And, and it feels so silly and it feels so like disposable and it feels like, you know, like live, laugh, love on your country kitchen wall or whatever. But <laughs> And it's hard, like for me being like a, a, a Gen Xer who's just like inherently cynical, I can't help it. Like, yeah, whatever is like a fundamental part. We are the generation that invented meh. Like that part of me is so loud, you know? And it is so hard to not be like, just put your woo-woo bullshit away, dude. But honestly, it's a thing that like philosophers have been writing about for millennia. Yeah. If you look at Carl Sagan's photograph of the Earth from Saturn and read his speech about the pale blue dot and think about what that means, I hope that it creates a space in, not you specifically, you that understood you, you who was listening to this, I hope it creates a space in you where you realize, where you have this shift in your thinking. We are so small and everything is so fragile and so temporary. Why would we spend any of this time doing anything other than 
pursuing joy and putting art in the world and making this time meaningful and memorable and like doing great things. It's just a gift. And I don't know, it feels like tree hugging hippie to say all of that, but no, like, so good. I just know that when I am able to embrace those ideas and kind of, and live with that intention, I'm just a lot happier. Yep. And I absolutely, I just, you know, there is a person listening to this who's like, well, yeah, like, you know, if I had your life, I'd be able to do the same thing. I absolutely get it. I am massively privileged, massively privileged, 100%. I absolutely acknowledge that. And I'm just grateful that that gives me the opportunity to live in that place and live by example and inspire other people to hopefully reach for it, you know, themselves. It's just, I said in a speech once, life's too short to be Voldemort. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. And it's such a beautiful way to end. And I'm sure that that clip is going to be played and replayed because when you think of the earth in that photograph, this pale blue dot, you're right. Like there is nothing else to say other than that. There really isn't. Nothing else needs to be added. So tell everybody where they can buy the book and follow along with all of your adventures. The book is called Still Just a Geek. It's available every place you get books. There is an audio version that I narrated that uh, has material that was not in the print version because as I was telling my story, I remembered things that I didn't wow. remember when I was writing it. Also, speaking it fundamentally massively changed things inside of me and like healed all this trauma and pain oh that was lingering. Like, you know, in my book, I write a thing where I'm like telling my mom, you put all this shit on this little boy's shoulders, when you're talking about putting the blocks on the child you, she put everything into my hands mm. and left nothing for me, left no space for me to exist. I was so busy holding up that was not mine to hold that I completely lost myself. And in this thing in the book, I say like, I'm giving it all back to you. I will not carry this anymore. This was never my burden. And it was wrong of you to put it on me. And I give it all back. There was this, this thing happened when I was narrating the book, when I said that, and I was like, <gasps> it was like, it. it was like coming up for air after having been underwater for five hours. Oh. Just that like, <gasps> oh. and it wasn't there when I wrote it, but it was there when I said it. So if you're a person who wants a visceral experience, uh, I think the book is a real is a real way to experience that. Um, if you're a person for whom that might be a little more a little too intense, which is really <laughs> valid, I hope you'll check it out in print versions. If you ever wanted to find me on the internet uh, and establish a parasocial relationship with me, uh, I am on Instagram and Facebook as It's Will Wheaton. I don't use any other social networks unless you count Tumblr, which I really don't. I'm willwheaton.tumblr.com. Uh, it's an aesthetics Tumblr. If you like Betty Page and Vaporwave, uh, <laughs> then uh, you definitely want to follow that Tumblr blog. And then my home base since 2000 is and always will be willwheaton.net. So uh, those, are the, those are the really easy ways to, uh, to find me. And if you only want to remember one thing, willwheaton.net has links to absolutely everything that, that I care about. Lots of other fun things that I do. I do a silly podcast and I occasionally like, stream on Twitch and things like that. You can find out about all of that at willweaton.net. Well, hearing you 
talk and being witness to you over this last little bit. It's like watching John Williams, like get up and conduct at the honestly. And then I'm like, this is just one thing you're doing in the many things that you're doing in this day and this week. And like, you give so much of yourself, your presence. So I just want to say it is acknowledged and I learned so much. I feel like I just had a ton of healing because you just oh, gave really so much. And so I just want to say you're awesome. <laughs> and you're just really, really a rare gift. So thank you so much for all of it. You're very kind. It has been a real privilege and, and a real pleasure to talk with you. Um, and it means a lot to me that you see me. I feel very, very, very seen. I've done a ton of press for this, a ton. On. There was a point last month where I told Anne, like, this is getting to be re-traumatizing. Like, I need a break. It's, yeah, you know? yeah, I understand. Um, and in all of that I've done, I've only felt like truly seen a couple of times. And I really appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Thank you. You have been uh, part of my life for such a long time. So, you know, sometimes you meet those people and you're like, I hope that this person turns out oh, to be... It's so risky, right? Like, oh, like, man. Well, you're one zillion times cooler than the kid <laughs> whose like uh, magazine picture was in my room with like, it was you and Ricky Schroeder and Jason Bateman and Fred Savage. And like, you're such a huge heart of a soul of a person and I'm, I'm better for it. So you're just so cool. I'm so excited for what's next for you. Cause like you only said that you started having these big capital R realizations in the last decade. So it's like, can you even imagine what's going to pour out of you? I'm working on a couple of fiction projects right now that are really fun. And because I know myself better than I did two years ago, I have a clearer voice. I feel like my dialogue is better. And I feel like my ability to be objective in the plotting and realization of the story is at a place where it wasn't before. And I'm so excited. I'm having such a good time doing yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, we have so many fans. And I think that yeah. it's pretty cool that you see that and feel that. So it's like, we're ready. We're ready for the next thing. So thank well, you. Um, thank you. I'm gonna do my best to keep earning your time and attention. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was really, really such a deep conversation. Here are the takeaways. Number one, all the threads have to weave together, even the really painful ones. It's all part of the tapestry. Number two, no single thing in our lives absolutely defines us. Every single one of us has the fundamental right to make mistakes, grow from the lesson, and have the opportunity to find and realize our individual truth. Number three, your dreams might change as you move through life. It's not a defect. It's a feature of being human. Be gentle with yourself. Number four, it's not about how many houses or records you sell. The joy comes from the process of making the work. Number five, tell your inner child that you're super safe now, buddy. Stand up for yourself in the way you couldn't do back then. You no longer have to participate in being silent or playing small. Number six, be the person you need in the world. When you do that, you become the person someone else needs. Number seven, when you take away the artificial ideas that separate us, we're not really that different. We're all the same. And number eight, we're so small. Everything is so fragile and temporary. So why would we spend any of this time doing anything other than pursuing joy and putting art and beauty in the world and making this time meaningful and memorable and doing great things? This is a gift and life is too short to be Voldemort. Thank you so much for listening. I know that there's so much going on, especially today's a holiday weekend and it's summer 
And I really appreciate that you're here. And I hope that you're getting so many valuable things from this. And I will continue to pour my heart and soul into every episode. There are so many good episodes coming up. So make sure that you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. Of course, it's free to subscribe and it makes sure that you don't miss anything. And if you are enjoying this show, the very best way you can support us is to leave us a review and to share the show. So if this show touched you in some way, maybe you could think about texting it to someone and sharing the link or emailing it, or you could post about it on your Instagram and tag me at Kathy.Heller and you can tag Will and he's at Will Wheaton and Will is spelled W-I-L-W-H-E-A-T-O-N. I'm sure that he would love to see if you enjoyed the conversation. And just to remind you, if you want to be at my retreat, August 1st through 3rd in beautiful Malibu, you can sign up at kathyheller.com slash retreat. It's going to be on this gorgeous ranch with twinkly chandeliers in the trees. It's rustic. It's bougie. It's gorgeous. We'll have sound bath and breath work and meditation, and we will move space and time, and you will feel like you just came into this place that really feels like you in the biggest way and the things that you will create as a result will be epic you can join us at kathyheller.com slash retreat i love you so much i'll leave you with a song happy fourth of july talk to you thursday
and the sky.